Where are we going? Welcome to this exclusive podcast produced by Spirit Watch Ministries that will show where life in our darkening times is now turning and how you can avoid the detours of deception through the hope of biblical truth. The Lord Jesus in Matthew 24 warned us over two millennia ago and how urgently we need to heed him now. Our host is Pastor Rafael Martinez, a seasoned Northwest Indiana-based minister, intercessor, and counter-cult apologist who will help you discern the journey of change we're all on as the last day of the last days now winds down. For more information, check out our Facebook page and our website at spiritwatch.org. Now, here's Pastor Rafael. Hello, I'm Rafael Martinez, a minister within the Church of God Cleveland Movement and the director of Spirit Watch Ministries, a Christian outreach providing biblical discernment in the deceptive times that we currently live. Our podcast is called, Where Are We Going? And it seeks to supply answers to a great question a lot of people are asking these days about the direction our world is taking. Our days are increasingly shadowed by our darkness at all levels, and it's difficult to really understand where our world is heading. Where Are We Going? It's a Spearwatch podcast that will do all it can to shine light and hope where we possibly can. We're closing in on the final lap of the year of 2023 and our third season, with Christmas time once again at hand. Now, Christmas is a season of celebration by global culture that indulges in feasts, splurges on gift giving, lots of candy, cookies, holiday movie watching, shopping. And, of course, the adoption of what many like to call the spirit of Christmas that extols the virtues of living among others in peace, goodwill, generosity, and tolerance. Now, these are great ideas any time of the year, at all times of the year. Why they are only defined uh, or confined to Christmas time is really uh, an interesting question that many people need to ask themselves. But, but somehow, through it all, the name and person of Jesus Christ himself who really is the reason for the season. He even gets a mention sometimes in school festivals, maybe in office parties and family get-togethers, in ad print and even hymns. He came as a baby boy who would grow up to become a bloodied victim of cruelty upon a cross outside ancient Jerusalem and whose death would pay for the sins of the world and the healing of creation. His life was that of to be a literal redemption for the world. Now, that's not anything you really hear much about, even in these holidays, but but even though the reality is right there to be told. So we're taking the opportunity to make this public service announcement about Christmas just to make sure we set the record truly straight here. And so many Christians, uh, so many of them make Christmas an immoral time of self-gratification, maybe even a religious commemoration held at arm's length. And many others may even view it as a serious time of embracing these revealed truths about God's nature and, and love for his creation that, that's found in the incarnation of Jesus in our historical past. So many do that. And even people who are outside the church even indulge in it a little bit. But there are others who, while claiming to preach the truth about him, object to the observance of Christmas as a dishonorable insult of God due to it being a supposedly utterly pagan remnant of misguided piety, with not a few Christian churches sincerely believing that strange position. Cultic movements are among the masses of religious people who reject Christmas, and of them all, none are more vocal about it than the Watchtower Society, who are represented in their constituency of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, throughout the year, and especially in December, Jehovah's Witnesses 
preach a hardline rejection of the Yule time season and the specious reasoning that they claim to demand to be closely regarded. Thanks to our Spirit Watch archives, we're bringing to you now a 1996 home Bible study talk that was recorded and delivered by Dr. Robert Bowman, a Christian apologist who at the time was serving as a researcher with the Atlanta Christian Apologetics Project based there in the Peach State. I and some old ministry associates attended this study from years ago, and we're delighted to bring it to our podcast today in a formal teaching time about a subject that is certainly timeless. Most all of the objections to Christmas that are set forth by sincere people, believing it should be shunned, are preserved in the reasoning of Jehovah's Witnesses' disputes about it. And so we trust it will be a thought-provoking bit of discussion how to answer these objections using sound biblical review and critical thinking. Christians who think that much or all of uh, Christmas is pagan in, in origin and who uh, think that Christians should not celebrate Christmas. And so that there's, it's relevant for that reason. The other uh, reason why this is important is even if uh, you're comfortable with celebrating Christmas, there are a number of practical, uh, theological, and uh, practical issues in the Christian life this touches on, and it's a real good object lesson in uh, how to think about certain practical issues in the church and how not to think about them as we see the Jehovah's Witnesses run through their way through this particular issue. The other thing I want to say about this by way of introduction is that when you talk with Jehovah's Witnesses, most Christians talk with them about topics where it is really impossible in an evening to deal with even all of the major biblical passages relevant to that issue, or even all the major questions about that particular issue. Uh, there are hundreds of scriptures that are relevant to the doctrine of the Trinity, for example. And I have an outline study on it that has about 700 biblical references. And uh, that's not exhaustive by any means. So if you try to talk about the Trinity with a Jehovah's Witness that comes to your door, uh, you're really not going to get very far. Uh, that's the only time you're ever going to see that person. That's probably not the best topic to try to try to deal with them on. This time of year, Christmas is an obvious one. It's a natural one, and uh, actually, Christmas is a topic that can be got around, uh, you know, and worked through in a reasonable period of time. But there aren't thousands of scripture references that relate to the Christmas issue. Uh, also, there are no paradoxes or uh, mysteries to be. Uh, face down with the doctrine of uh, 
holidays and the celebration of Christmas question like there is with the doctrine of the Trinity or the Incarnation, any of those kinds of doctrines. Uh, we don't have to worry about uh, uh, trying to convince the Jehovah's Witness uh, that they should be willing to accept mysteries that the Bible teaches them some such thing. You don't have to deal with that, that problem. So it's a good issue to deal with uh, Jehovah's Witnesses on, I think, for those reasons. And I found that many Jehovah's Witnesses are much, much more confident in their organization's stand on questions like Christmas than in their stand on things like the person of Christ or the way of salvation. I had a couple hour conversation with some Jehovah's Witnesses years ago where the stated topic, which I had no choice on, was the Trinity. They were completely devastated when we were done as far as defending their doctrine against the Trinity. But the relative of the friend of mine that we were doing this for said, well, I still think the witnesses have the truth because they don't celebrate Christmas and they don't celebrate birthdays. They don't do this and the other thing. So, well, gee, we've been talking about the wrong thing for the last two hours now. So... <laughs> This tends to be kind of a fallback thing where, because most Christians can't even try to talk to them about these kinds of questions like blood transfusions or Christmas or birthdays or going to war or things like that, Jehovah's Witnesses can always fall back on those and say, well, I know we're right about these things. No one's ever even challenged me on these things. I've even met Christians who agree with me on these things. You know, so they, they feel very confident that they have the truth because they don't celebrate Christmas and such. So I think it'd be really helpful if once in a while a Jehovah's Witness got their balloon punctured on this particular question by a knowledgeable Christian when they come to the door. So it's just an encouragement you might find this to be a useful uh, witnessing tool to be able to, it's got to shock most Jehovah's Witnesses uh, if this happens to them, they go to the door and somebody actually can respond to these arguments. Uh, it would probably really throw them for a loop. So keep that in mind. All right, so what we have here are uh, 13 arguments from Jehovah's Witnesses against celebrating Christmas and Christian responses to all these. So a baker's dozen, I guess, of uh, arguments. And most or all of these arguments can be found in the Jehovah's Witness book, Reasoning from the Scriptures, or in other materials that Jehovah's Witnesses publish. Uh, these, are, these are all quite common arguments. I've heard them many times. And Jehovah's Witnesses. I'm going to run through these and we'll slow down on ones that you may have uh, questions about toward the end. We'll try to have some, some question and answer time, but uh, some of these are pretty easy to understand and some of these may require a little bit of explanation. First of all, in order to show that celebrating Christmas is a bad thing, Jehovah's Witnesses uh, take the obvious tack of arguing that celebrating birthdays is a bad thing. So celebrating birthdays is a bad thing. Celebrating the birthday of Jesus Christ would also be a bad thing. If celebrating birthdays is a pagan, wicked, immoral practice, then you don't want to do it uh, for Jesus or anybody else. Well, in order to prove that birthdays are uh, inherently evil, they point out that the only two people uh, whose birthdays are celebrated in the Bible are wicked kings, Pharaoh in Genesis and Herod Antipas in Matthew 14. Both of these uh, kings celebrated their birthdays by having somebody killed. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I guess that was a, a typical thing for kings to do. Let's see, it's my birthday. Who shall I kill? You know? <laughs> uh, it, it, in Matthew 14, of course, it was John the Baptist, uh, one of the most famous uh, executions in all of history. 
Well, yeah, he wasn't too, yeah, he wasn't too happy about doing that, but that's, he did that. All right, now, Jehovah's Witnesses reason, the fact that these are the only two birthday celebrations mentioned in the Bible sort of gives us a little hint from God that God doesn't like birthdays. Uh, to me, this is atrocious reasoning. Uh, the only <laughs> thing that one can really infer from this is that God hates murder, you know, or maybe God doesn't like kings celebrating their birthdays. I mean, you know, how they get from these two stories to people should not celebrate their birthdays is beyond me. Scripture does not uh, condemn these kings because they celebrated their birthdays. Uh, if anything, it condemns them for the obvious immoral act of killing people unjustly. And God disapproves of that 365 days of the year. It would not have made any difference if Herod had had John the Baptist beheaded the next day. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses have this funny mentality on the issue of birthdays. You can uh, bake a cake and give presents to your kid on any day of the year except their birthday. Okay? Uh, and, and I'm not exaggerating. Their books actually say that Christians can uh, have wholesome celebrations on other days. That's a quote on other days, but don't do it on the kid's birthday, for goodness sake. Now, if you have a really big family, you know, uh, that would rule out maybe, you know, as many as 10 or 12 days of the year. Plus, if you can't celebrate Christmas, you can't celebrate. So there's actually a number of days on which you can't do these kinds of things, but if it's not a holiday and it's not a birthday, party, party. You know, it seems to be the message here. It's a very strange mentality. Uh, number two, birthday celebrations originated from paganism, where they had associations with magic and superstition. Blowing, making a wish and blowing out candles is one of these uh, superstitious practices that's clung to birthdays. And it's superstitious if you really believe that blowing out a candle, birthday candle, will make your wish come true. Uh, it's just kind of fun and games otherwise. And I don't, I've never met anybody who really believed that there was some magical power inherent in birthday candles. <laughs> people apparently did used to believe that. And they used to believe a lot of this superstitious mumbo jumbo that was originally associated with birthday celebration in pagan cultures. But that, that pagan mumbo jumbo was there 365 days a year, again, not just on birthdays. The fact that something originates from a pagan context does not make it evil. Uh, chemistry originates from alchemy, astronomy from astrology. Uh, logic was first worked out uh, formally by a pagan, Aristotle, mm -hmm. pagan philosopher Aristotle. These things are not bad. Uh, shorn of their pagan associations, uh, logic, chemistry, and uh, uh, all these other sciences and, and various other practices are not evil. Celebrating a person's birthday does not violate any obvious biblical principle. And the scriptures that I've given here uh, make the point, and you can look up all of these and you'll see, make the point that if God doesn't say don't do it, you don't tell other people don't do it. Uh, you may advise them that you don't think this is a particularly healthy thing to do or the appropriate thing to do, but don't condemn other people for doing something if there's no clear biblical principle or command or prohibition that's relevant to the to the issue. And in fact, Colossians 2, this famous passage about why do you go around saying don't touch, don't eat, you know. Uh, a lot of people will live by a religion of don'ts. Uh, it's not limited to Jehovah's Witnesses by any means. There's sort of a cultural, uh, legalistic, uh, don't religion mindset that's been 
famously, perhaps to some extent unjustly, but uh, or caricatured, but uh, associated with Bible Belt fundamentalist Christianity. And you know, we're maturing out of that. Most people I know don't think that way anymore, but it used to be that way. It really did. And we have to recognize that this is not sound Christianity. The Jehovah's Witnesses uh, really. I remember a couple years ago at the ACAP conference, John Weldon giving it, no, it wasn't John Weldon, it was uh, Jerry Burton, gave a, a long list. It took, he had about three pages of don'ts, things that they weren't allowed to do. Everything from participating in school sports to you know, celebrating birthdays, just you name it, voting. I mean, there's a lot of things that you're not allowed to do. And really what this ends up doing is it isolates Jehovah's Witnesses from the culture. And that's the whole goal. That's really the whole point of it. All right, number three, scripture does not command or encourage the celebration of Jesus' birthday or other holidays. In Galatians 4, Paul says, you observe days and months and you know, seasons and years. Paul's concern there is they're doing so out of some kind of religious ob obligation or in belief that this is somehow going to put them right with God or, or keep them in the right standing with God. That is a bad reason to observe days. Uh, I used to be a Roman Catholic in Roman Catholicism. Uh, various holidays are called holy days of obligation. And that means you have to go to Mass on those days. I do think that that's unscriptural. Uh, I see no uh, problem with going to church on Christmas Eve or Christmas Eve service or something. I've done that many times. But to make that an obligation, to impose it by ecclesiastical edict, I think is uh, going beyond scripture. But that doesn't mean that observing the days is a bad thing in and of itself. It's a matter of indifference, according to Paul in Romans 14 and Colossians 2. Would that be any way similar? I've heard that in some more legalistic uh, congregations in the Church of Christ, that, which I happen to be a member of the Church of Christ, uh, that there was a view that you had to attend church on a regular basis, or else there's something seriously wrong with you. Well... That's a little bit different. Saying that one ought to attend church on a regular basis, I think, has a biblical basis for it. But making, I mean, every Sunday. But uh, saying that there's some, yeah, if you miss a Sunday or something, that uh, yeah. that somebody is authorized to uh, conduct an inquisition into your reasons, I think, is obviously going beyond the bounds. And, and maybe that happens in some more legalistic churches, not just churches of Christ, but others as well. Yeah, that would be unscriptural as well. And again, in Roman Catholicism, every Sunday is in a sense a holy day of obligation. And I think the Catholic Church went a little bit uh, overboard on those. But we don't have to go to the other extreme of saying that holidays or celebrations are, are a bad thing. All right, now, number four, the day of Jesus' birth is unknown, uh, but was almost certainly not December 25th. That's true. Uh, the chances of it actually having been December 25th are, are slim. Even if it was in December, you only have a, <laughs> a 1 in 30 shot or so, you know, uh, of it being uh, December 25th. But the actual date of Jesus' birth is irrelevant. Uh, the church, when it started practicing uh, the celebration of Jesus' birthday on December 25th, did not claim that they knew for a fact that that was the day of Jesus' birth. In fact, not all Christians celebrated it on December 25th, and not all do today. Uh, some people celebrate Christ's birthday, for example, on January 6th. Yeah, the Orthodox? Yeah, the Orthodox tradition. And there isn't anything wrong with that. 
the fact that Christians felt that they could you know, choose different days depending on their traditions or whatever uh, shows, and historical evidence shows, that they never thought the real issue was uh, pinpointing the exact day of Christ's birth. Now, they did think that it was in December or January, but uh, they didn't claim that they knew for a fact that's when it was. Now, it's interesting to note, uh, in specifically dealing with Jehovah's Witnesses, that they celebrate what we would call communion. They call the Lord's evening meal once a year. They only do it once a year. I don't know if you knew that. They only do it once a year. It's always on Passover, and only members of the 144,000 can partake, which right now there's only about 700,000 of them, so many congregations nobody can partake because there's like 50,000 congregations and only 8,000 anointed. Uh, so it's kind of a strange celebration. You know, the, the plate gets passed around and nobody takes, you know. Uh, <laughs> Oh, that was fun. <laughs> Let's go home. But Jehovah's Witnesses do this once a year, uh, obviously minimizing the celebration of Christ's uh, atoning death on the cross. Again, they're not the only ones that do this, but they're the most famous group that do this. But Passover falls on different days uh, from year to year. In fact, sometimes it's in March and sometimes it's in April. Uh, so there we're not tied to a particular day of the year as the day that celebrates the death of Christ. I mean, that's what it is. It's, it's a celebration of the death of Christ, but it isn't necessary to know on what day Christ died in order to say, now, we are always going to celebrate the death of Christ uh, on that particular day. Now, you know, my historical research, it turns out it was April 3rd, all right? But we don't have to celebrate the death of Christ on April 3rd or even agree that that's the day on which he died in order to celebrate Christ's death uh, on Good Friday, if you want to call it that, or every time we celebrate communion. So uh, there's Jehovah's Witnesses have themselves kind of given it away by, by celebrating the Lord's evening meal on Passover. It's not impossible that Jesus was born in December. It's commonly thought that because the shepherds were watching the flocks by night that it couldn't have been during those cold months of December or January. But uh, even today, uh, there are reports of uh, some shepherds being out in the fields with their flocks at night uh, at the time of year. So it's not impossible, and uh, it could have been that time of year, but it probably wasn't. We really don't know. Well, if I may, I remember once looking at a Catholic Bible, and there's a footnote that said, this was the Roman tax day, is December the 25th. Well, there, there's another reason <laughs> why it was chosen, okay? <laughs> uh, we're getting to that number five now. Uh, December 25th, according to Jehovah's Witnesses, and, and they're right about this, was originally a pagan holiday and associated with a number of different celebrations. That particular time of year was associated with the winter solstice, which is really the basis of all this. Uh, the Roman sun god festival known as Saturnalia, which was a day, of course, worshiping the sun god called Saturn. That was actually on December 17th, which would be the day, by the way. Uh, and, uh, and especially the Mithric celebration, uh, the worship of Mithra, uh, on the day known as the birthday of the invincible sun, uh, Sola uh, or Solus Invictus. Now that's all true. Okay, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses sometimes don't get their facts quite right about this, but basically they're right about this. That's what December 25th originally was. It was originally a, a day in which pagans worshipped Mithra as the invincible sun. Now, uh, the fact, of course, is that when Christians celebrate Christmas, they're not worshipping Mithra. 
I mean, most Christians I know have never heard of Myth Boom. Okay? You know, <laughs> Myth Boom? <laughs> um, but rather, they're celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ, the true Son, S-U-N, of righteousness, as he's called, uh, most Christians would say, in Malachi 4.2. Uh, Jesus Christ is commonly, in the New Testament, described in terms that have associations with the Son. He's the light of the world. Okay, The Son up in the sky is, in a physical sense, the light of the world. Jesus Christ is the spiritual light of the world. Uh, Jesus Christ is the light which brings light to every man, John 1, 9. Revelation 1, 16, he's described as his face is like the sun shining. Uh, Hebrews 1, 2 says that he's the radiance of God's uh, brightness. Like the, God is the sun and Jesus Christ is the, the light streaming from the sun is the image there. So this is a very common New Testament picture of Jesus Christ as the sun. And so the Christians in the early church as they began to win over the Roman world from paganism said, you know, Jesus Christ is the real son um, and not Mithra. And so instead of celebrating Mithra's birthday on December 25th, let's celebrate Jesus' birthday. It was a natural. And it was not uh, replacing, it was not Christianizing paganism then. This is number six. Jehovah's Witnesses say Christmas was really then kind of a baptized pagan festival or a Christianized pagan festival. That's not true. It was a replacement of a pagan festival. They said, we're going to stop worshiping Mithra, and we're going to start worshiping Christ on this day. Uh, it turns out that Christians who were found mixing the two, who were worshiping Mithra, or doing things on Christmas that smacked of Mithra worship, were disciplined by the church. Um, they, they, the church actually watched over this, and unlike today, I would say. <laughs> and. Uh, uh, took a, a dim view of people bringing pagan uh, immorality and, and other uh, ungodly practices into the worship of Jesus Christ on Christmas. Now, Jehovah's Witnesses uh, argue, this is number seven, that scripture forbids mixing pagan elements into the Christian faith. And there are scriptures that say this. There are some of them that they mention, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 21. 2 Corinthians 6, especially, verses 14 and 18. But, of course, for Jehovah's Witnesses, practically everything is pagan. I mean, they really have that mindset that anything that's not directly found in the Bible, uh, except their teachings, of course, uh, are inherently pagan. <laughs> uh, it's, they do have this kind of uh, God versus Satan mindset, which everything is either directly from God, directly from uh, the Word of God and commanded in Scripture, and you have to do it because God says you can do it, or it's of the devil. Uh, now, I don't want to make it sound like there's this neutral territory where there's things that are going on, and neither God nor Satan are, you know, as it were, involved in these things. There is no neutral territory. But there are things that people can do that are neither demonic nor divine. They're just things that people do, like celebrating birthdays. And so this whole mentality that Jehovah's Witnesses have is an unbiblical mentality. What scripture really forbids is not doing things that pagans do, okay? Because pagans do a lot of things that are fine. I mean, presumably pagans brush their teeth and you know, do a lot of other things. And what's forbidden is doing things that pagans do that contradict scripture, that are in violation of biblical principles. That's what's 
forbidden in Scripture, like worshiping false gods, saying a lot, a lot of the early Christians were tempted to add Jesus to the pantheon of gods. You've got Zeus, you've got Athena, you've got all these other gods and goddesses, you've got Mithra, whatever. Just add Jesus to the collection. The pagan mindset was you cover all the bases that way. When they would make an incantation, they would just name, rattle off all the names of the gods they knew, hoping one of them would, would be awake and, and do something. And the altar to an unknown god. The altar to the unknown god in, in uh, Acts 17. Again, that pagan superstitious mindset, we, gotta, we don't really know what's out there. We don't really know what the gods really are and what all of them are. And so the, that altar was, uh, in case there's anybody we missed. You know? <laughs> and that was the way pagans thought. So when they heard about Jesus, they Oh, Jesus is a God? No problem. We'll add him. You know. And of course, a lot of people they kind of add Jesus to their life today in a different way. But that was the pagan mindset. Was to, Jesus was, or Yahweh, the Lord of Israel. He was one of many gods. And if you wanted to worship him along with the other gods and, and the emperor and so forth, fine. And so the early Christians said, no, you can't mix paganism with Christianity that way. It's Jesus all the way and no other gods. And that's the point of 2 Corinthians 6 and these other passages. It's not to say that you can't in, bring into the church uh, practices that are not immoral or ungodly, but come originally from paganism and, and make them part of the Christian tradition. There's nothing in the Bible against that. Now, to prove that there is something in the Bible against that, Jehovah's Witnesses have uh, recently been citing the story of the golden calf in Exodus 32. And the way they, the spin they put on this is that... Uh, the golden calf incident is one in which they make this calf and then they declare that in worshiping this calf they are celebrating a festival to the Lord or a festival to Jehovah, that's the literal translation of course we put it. And so Jehovah's Witnesses say, see, just because you say that you're worshiping God when you do this pagan thing doesn't mean that you really are and God doesn't like that. Well actually what God didn't like was not that they borrowed something from Egyptian culture, you know, that God hates all things Egyptian. That wasn't the point. It was that what they specifically barred was worshiping an idol. Okay? <laughs> That's what God didn't like. God has no problem with art. God has no problem with statues. God commands the Israelites to make art and statues, the uh, Ark of the Covenant and the Temple and so forth. There's all kinds of art, artistry, both uh, you know, two-dimensional and three-dimensional in the Bible that the Israelites were actually commanded to make. What God doesn't like is when we worship those things. And in fact, uh, many of the festivals that were instituted by God for the Israelites in the Old Testament were originally pagan festivals, agricultural festivals in particular, where people would uh, celebrate uh, the harvest, or they would celebrate uh, the seed time, and they would have a, they would worship their gods, and they do all kinds of uh, wild and wonderful things. And God said, I want you to have celebrations at this time too, but instead of celebrating nature, and worshiping nature and and all that. I want you to celebrate what I have done for you. I want to you to celebrate your deliverance from the Egyptians. I want you to celebrate your entrance into the promised land. I want you to celebrate my provision for you. That's what God does when he institutes these celebrations. They, they had pagan counterparts that the Israelites were already familiar with. The Israelites would not have missed what God was doing. God was basically saying, look, the instinct to celebrate is something you can't eradicate from people. And I want you to do that. 
And I want you to be happy, and I want you to enjoy life, and I want you to celebrate life. But I want you to celebrate it in a way that honors me, not that honors uh, pagan gods or that gets you involved in immorality. A classic example of this is in Numbers, when God tells Moses to make a bronze serpent and have it held up, and to tell the Israelites to look at that bronze serpent uh, in order to be healed. Now, that sounds very pagan. But what they were supposed to do, in fact, bronze serpents were made by pagans in those days to as objects of religious worship. But when they looked at the serpent, they weren't looking at the serpent to worship that serpent or to worship that, that uh, bronze image. They were looking at that serpent to remind them that God had brought the serpents in their midst in the first place and to trust in God who told them to do that. Later on, when they started worshiping the bronze serpent uh, in 2 Kings, uh, that was something that God disapproved of, and the bronze serpent had to be destroyed. The very same serpent, bronze serpent that God told Moses to make was destroyed because people were worshiping it, which was a misuse of it. So it wasn't the thing, you see. It was the misuse of it that was condemned by God. There isn't anything that you can make or do, really, uh, that is inherently evil. It's what you do with it, how you do it, what make use you make of these things that is evil. Uh, the bronze serpent, even after it had been destroyed, was such a good picture of redemption that Jesus Christ used it in John 3, talking about as the bronze serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, you know, the Son of Man will be lifted up. And when we believe in him, we'll have eternal life. Uh, number nine, uh, moving on to another aspect of Christmas, and that is the gift giving. And uh, one of the, the classic stories associated with Christmas is the story of the wise men, or the Magi. Jehovah's Witnesses have an interesting spin on the Magi. They say that the wise men who gave gifts to Jesus were really astrologers, and that they used astrology to find Jesus by following the star, and that they were obviously not doing what God wanted them to do because they endangered the life of Jesus by revealing his existence to Herod. You know, Herod wanted to kill him and all that. And therefore, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses conclude that the example of the Magi should not be imitated. Now, there are several problems with this argument, and it's really a, a classic example of Jehovah's Witness misinterpretation of Scripture. First of all, to say that the Magi were astrologers is really misleading. Yes, they probably were schooled in astrology. Every intelligent person in the East would have been. They may even have made use of astrology uh, or been awakened to this uh, star through the study of astrology, and that may have indirectly led them to Christ, although Matthew doesn't really say anything about astrology per se. Uh, but to say that they were, just describe them as astrologers, that, that's how wise men or magi is translated in the New World Translation. It's translated as astrologers. It makes them sound like they were uh, guys who wrote horoscopes for the Babylon Times. <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's really a misleading translation. These guys were the intelligentsia of the East. These guys were educated in all of the sciences and arts, and really, there isn't any better translation than wise men, unless you want to try something like philosophers or something. These were uh, the creme de la creme of the intelligent uh, people from the East. These were the educated people. And they were, of course, pagans. Yes, they were non-Christians, non-Jews. 
But apparently, God led them. And we know that for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that the star was not just some ordinary phenomenon. Uh, the star was moving and showing them exactly where Jesus was. There's no indication in the text that this is a demonic uh, manifestation. Quite the contrary. Yes, ma'am. I was going to say that, that Jehovah's Witnesses believe that the star was sent by Satan, not by God. Amazing. Haven't they read Isaiah 40? About God knowing every star and it's all under God's control. Uh, now, now the devil is manipulating the heavenly body. That's a, it's an astonishing. Uh, didn't the didn't uh, scripture say somewhere about there will be false signs in the heavens? Or, I, I, no, I'll, I'll it check. It talks it. about there being signs in the heavens, but as a sign of God's judgment. Oh. But yeah. the interesting thing here is the other. When it's, we're told in Matthew two twelve that the Magi were warned in a dream. And the word warned there really means warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod. So God was with these people, and uh, they were being led by God. The other thing is the whole Gospel of Matthew emphasizes the fact that the Gentiles were especially receptive uh, to Jesus Christ, and that the message was going out to the Gentiles because Jews were rejecting, as a, as a whole, were rejecting Christ, but Gentiles seemed more open to it, and that the message was going to go out to them. And really, you should read the story of the Magi in that light. It's a positive, the first indication in the Gospel of Matthew that this message is going to go out to all the nations. And the Magi represent uh, the Gentiles in that way. Now, having tried to argue that you shouldn't follow the Magi's example, and the Jehovah's Witnesses will turn around and say, but even if you were going to imitate their example, they didn't give gifts to each other. They gave gifts to Christ. All right. Now, that's true. Uh, of course, uh, you know, baby Jesus isn't here anymore for us to go uh, uh, present uh, gold, frankincense, and myrrh uh, before he's stable. But uh, that's true. Uh, they gave gifts to Christ. But in the same gospel of Matthew, Jesus says that if you do good things to other people in my name, you're doing them for me. You're doing well, them. You're not doing them to get gifts back. Well, that's if you're doing them in His name, you're doing them because you love Christ. And, uh, you know, the, the story in Matthew, <laughs> the parable in Matthew 25 about the sheep and the goats, and, uh, Lord, when did we see you naked and, and not clothe you? And, you know, all this, Jesus, if you didn't do them, do these things to the least of my brethren, you didn't do them to me. And, of course, the positive, you did these things to the least of my brethren, you did them to me. So if you give gifts to your children or to your friends, your lo other loved ones, because you love Christ and because Christ's love is in you leading you to do that, you're doing that for Jesus Christ. You're giving something to Christ. I mean, you really can't give Christ anything now, per se, right? I mean, the old saw, but what do you give the guy who has everything? Okay. Um, well, you make him happy by giving things to other people. That's how you can give something to Christ. Uh, now, a couple more here, We're getting into some of the op really almost dispensable, optional parts of Christmas now. The Christmas tree, according to Jehovah's Witnesses, is a pagan symbol and is condemned in Scripture. And I hear this from a lot of Christians, too. I hear that from a lot of Christians. A lot of Christians say Jeremiah 10 describes the Christmas tree. Now, folks, listen to what Jeremiah 10 says. You can see why people would get this, but Jeremiah 10, verses 2 to 5, Thus says the Lord, do not learn the way of the nations, and do not be terrified by the signs of the heavens, although the nations are terrified by them. For the customs of the people are delusion, 
Because it is wood cut from the forest, the work of the hands of a craftsman with a cutting tool, they decorate it with silver and with gold, they fasten it with nails and with hammers so that it will not totter. Like a scarecrow in a cucumber field are they, and they cannot speak, they must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them, for they cannot do any harm, nor can they do any good. All right, now, the business about the wood cut down from the forest and it's decorated with silver and gold, people jump on that and say, this is a Christmas tree. And they prop it up so it won't fall over. Yeah, and it has to be propped up, you know. But this is not a Christmas tree. This is, the wood is cut down from the forest and then it is shaped, shaped or or fashioned by the craftsman to look like an animal or something, to look like an idol, to be to become an idol. And it is decorated, painted or whatever, with gold and silver uh, to make it look more you know, spiritual or something, to make it look more sacred. And that's really what's being described here, is the, fat, the uh, fashioning of an idol. It's not describing anything like a Christmas tree. It's not talking about cutting down a tree, dragging it into your house, and putting, you know, uh, balls and tinsel on it. That's just not what it's talking about. Now, of course, historically, the Christmas tree doesn't exist until Christianity. In fact, it developed in Western Germany in the medieval period. There were two Christian uh, symbols that were used in medieval times that ended up being fused into the Christmas tree. One was called the Paradise Tree, which was a, a tree that was used in medieval plays about Adam and Eve. And the, the feast day of Adam and Eve is in December, as I recall, uh, as well as Christmas. The other symbol was called the Christmas Pyramid. Don't think Egypt here. Uh, <laughs> it was a triangular wooden shelf on which little trinkets were put that were Christian symbols. And a lot of them had to do with, with Christmas, per se. And these two were fused into the Christmas tree. Uh, it had nothing to do with the Druids, it had nothing to do with uh, Babylonian religion, nothing to do with what Jeremiah or Isaiah are talking about. So the Christmas tree is not a pagan symbol. When I first uh, ran into this argument from Jehovah's Witnesses and I talked to other Christians about it, uh, you know, I, I bought this. I thought, gee, the Christmas tree is pagan. Then I did some research on it and found out that it just wasn't so. And um, Martin Luther was the one who came up with the idea of putting lights on it, which was done just as a display for children. Hmm. I didn't know that he came up with that. I knew it was in Germany. I was wondering if the tree of life has anything to do with the symbolism. That's not, yeah, the paradise tree was was a, a, a symbol of the tree of life in the garden. That's right. Mm. Now, probably the most uh, controversial and objectionable aspect of Christmas is there, if there is one, other than you know, drunken office parties and things like that, which everybody, <laughs> I think, here would agree is uh, biblical, would be Santa Claus. Uh, Santa Claus objected to on a number of grounds by Christians as well as Jehovah's Witnesses. Santa Claus appears to be a godlike figure. He knows if you've been sleeping. He knows if you're awake. You know, he knows if you've been bad or good. You know, uh, he's apparently omniscient. Uh, he's apparently omnipotent because he's able to give gifts to everybody, all the kids of the world, in one night. Okay? Um, and uh, I don't care how much power he has. Uh, you know, that seems to be a godlike attribute. And uh, so, so Santa Claus appears in uh, Western uh, folklore now to be this godlike creature. And in fact, many of the attributes of Santa Claus in American uh, culture, the, uh, the reindeer and the, the, the red suit and all the rest of that, apparently do derive from uh, Norse legends or some other uh, 
of legends about the god Thor. Uh, believe it or not, that appears to be the origin of some of these associations or trappings with Santa Claus. And Jehovah's Witness and others, is it really a good thing to tell children that there is Santa Claus when there isn't? Aren't you sort of setting them up for a fall? Aren't you telling them that uh, these beliefs that we tell these kids, that they're all myths and they, if they won't believe in Jesus next because they find out Santa Claus is alive and maybe Jesus is too. Well, the, my response to this, and this is something I want to make it clear, I don't want to impose my opinions on you on this because I do think this is something where Christians can legitimately have some strong disagreements on this question, but I really do think Santa Claus is a dispensable part of the Christmas tradition. If you don't like the Santa Claus story, you can jettison it, you can still celebrate Christmas, no problem. But you should know some facts about Santa Claus. Santa Claus was a real-life person. His name was Nicholas. He was a Christian bishop in the 4th century. He attended the Council of Nicaea. He voted with the Trinitarians. You might not want to mention that yet. Uh, uh, he, there are fairly reliable traditions that he was noted to be especially kind to children. I don't know about the jumping down chimney uh, trees bit. Uh, you know, he, there is fact behind the legends. And so St. Nicholas or Sinterklaas, Santa Claus, was a real person. He was a Christian. He was a godly man. He should be honored. Uh, he shouldn't be smeared as a Satan in disguise or something. It's just mm -hmm. not true. Now, yeah. what my mother told me about this was that Santa Claus is a spirit of giving without expecting something in return. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, she said, in that sense, he's real. Now, what I tell my children, for what it's worth, is when my kids are so little, they can't really tell the difference between make-believe or pretend and reality. We don't fuss about it. But as soon as they get old enough, they ask questions, we tell them. Santa Claus is make-believe. Oh, okay. Like Peter Pan. Yeah. No problem. Now, if you try to tell your kids when they're eight, nine years old that Santa Claus is real and you argue with them about it, then, yeah, I think you're doing something wrong. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, if... Uh, if you've got a four-year-old who still believes in Santa Claus and really, you know, it's just part of the fun and games, I don't think it's a problem. And actually, when they learn the difference between make-believe and reality, you can use Santa Claus as an object lesson. See, Santa Claus is make-believe, but, you know, Jesus is real. Isn't and Jesus is all-powerful, and Jesus is all-knowing. Hang on And you can make it an object lesson for teaching the difference. Finally, I want to say that Jehovah's Witnesses' real problem with Christmas is not about Santa Claus. It's not about the Christmas tree. It's not about paganism. It's not about mistletoe. It's not about any of this stuff. It's really about Jesus Christ. Amen. Jehovah's Witnesses in various articles in the Watchtower over the years, one I remember strongly in particular in 1983, uh, they had an article about Christmas music, and they were just, Christmas music. just announcing Christmas carols because they exalted Jesus too highly, because they regard Jesus Christ as God, and uh, they all this adulation and worship and reverence and glorifying Jesus Christ, oh, just drives Jehovah's Witnesses up your wall. <laughs> all right, Jehovah's yeah. Witnesses hate Christmas because it exalts Jesus Christ. It's the one time of the year that everybody talks about Jesus Christ. Everybody looks to Jesus Christ as the epitome of what human beings ought to be, if nothing else, and talking about peace on earth and all the rest of it. And yeah. 
non-Christians don't really have a handle on what Jesus really is all about, but isn't it a marvelous fact that, you know, for about a month out of the year, every year, practically everybody on the planet is thinking about Jesus Christ. I mean, not to our satisfaction, they're not worshiping Jesus Christ in spirit and truth, but they hear about Jesus Christ, and it's a great opportunity, and Jesus Christ is being exalted through it, and, uh, you know, he is making the nations prove the wonders of his love, and that's what Christmas is all about. It's about seeing in Jesus Christ the Godhead veiled, as Hark the Herald Angels Sing uh, says, and so when we sing Hark the Herald Angels Sing, or whatever, you know, when we glorify Jesus Christ in these Christmas carols, that's what Christmas is all about. That's what Jehovah's Witnesses really can't stand, because if Jesus is God, then salvation is purely a work of God's grace. God does it all, and they have to just accept it and trust in a God they can't understand who saves them with a salvation that they can't comprehend, and they don't want that. They can't stand it, and that's why they don't like Christmas. And that's the message of Christmas that we need to give Jehovah's Witnesses, that there is salvation that's free, that's abundant, that's beyond anything they can even imagine from a God they can't even imagine. He became incarnate in a way that they can't imagine on Christmas. That's what it's all about, and that's what we need to tell Jehovah's Witnesses. Thanks for listening today as we explore just where are we going. Our prayer is that you have been encouraged and strengthened and, if necessary, challenged in your daily journey through life. Jesus is coming. You can fall with the night or you can rise with the sun. The choice is yours. You can email us with questions and comments at feedback at spiritwatch.org. And if you need urgent personal spiritual help, email us at help at spiritwatch.org. We look forward to hearing from you. Please follow our podcasting at our Facebook page and our website at spiritwatch.org. This podcast is a production of Spirit Watch Ministries, taking heed that no man deceives you. Maybe Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas, perhaps, means a little bit more.